0: It's true for all of us that as we're growing up, we learn something very basic about the weather, and that that is when clouds begin to gather in the sky, we have a reasonable expectation, and we learn this over time. We learn that a storm is coming, and we also learn that clouds don't stay. We know that they will empty out the rain and the sun will shine again, and that's how the gathering of clouds will work. Numbers chapter 20 is a gathering of clouds. In Numbers chapter 20, we are watching, spiritually speaking, a coming together of things above the people of Israel that feels rather gloomy. Disturbing. Things that even feel like a deja vu moment. Haven't we been in something like this, facing circumstances similar to this, before? Not everything is gloomy in chapter 20. God works a miracle. He provides water for the people of Israel. But that's a shining spot in a very gathering of clouds kind of chapter. The chapter begins with a death. The end of the chapter, which we have not heard yet, the end of the chapter ends with a death. Miriam dies at the beginning. Aaron dies at the end. This is a chapter that feels like we're watching clouds gathering above the people is a storm of some kind coming. In verse one, we're told about the death of Moses' sister. That's why she's named here as Miriam, that we might remember with the naming of the death of this woman that she is Moses' sister from all those years before. The people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. They are not yet in the promised land. They've been traveling in wilderness areas. And the wilderness of Zin is a smaller region within the larger wilderness called Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea. Which is why it says they came in the wilderness of Zin and the people stayed in Kadesh. It's a location in this region. And Miriam died and was buried there. But I want us to ask two questions as we head into our passage this morning. We need to ask, where are we? And we need to ask, when? We need to ask where and when and the where question is easy because it's giving us the names of the places, the wilderness, the region, and that should provoke in our minds. Wait, they've been here before. Kadesh is a very particularly named place earlier from numbers 13 and 14. Two chapters that reported a location where the people stayed and sent 12 spies into Canaan to bring back a report. And the majority of the spies brought a bag report to the Kadesh congregation. That was followed by a rebellion of the people of Israel, a desire for a new leader to lead them back to Egypt, and a forsaking of the promised land. We cannot go there. We are not able to take it. Kadesh Barnea was a scene of rebellion from Numbers 13 and 14. When we're told that here the people have arrived after traveling and traveling, they come here to this place, Kadesh, in the wilderness, we realize we've seen this location before. So if we know where are we, let's ask when. When in the timeline are we? Well, we're told here that this is in the first month that this takes place. The first month of what year, though? The rest of Numbers is helpful here. This chapter reports a death at the beginning and a death at the end. And we learn from Numbers chapter 33 that Aaron dies in the 40th year of Israel's wandering. Which tells us when, when we look at the first month language of Numbers 20. The first month of what year? The first month of the last year of their wilderness wandering. And if, and if it seems like quite a bit of time has, has been jumped, and that's indeed the case, we saw not too many weeks ago, the beginning of a many decades, four decades of wandering, of being kept out of the promised land until a wicked generation would die in the wilderness. That was Numbers 13 and 14. We have now gone years and years and decades into the future. We are now in Numbers chapter 20 in the 40th year, and that means most of the wilderness wandering we are not given any narratives about. There are a select few between Numbers 13 and 20, but not many. Most of those years, we would imagine, we could reasonably project, would involve frustrated people, impatiently murmuring, rebelling in one time after another, and time has passed both for that congregation... We have seen over these years now, and in Numbers chapter 20, we arrive where the older generation would have nearly died. And now, in Numbers chapter 20, not many of that earlier generation remains. What else can we imply? Those who were children or not yet born in Numbers 13 and 14, when they were earlier at Kadesh are now full-grown adults, no doubt having children of their own. There has been a growth, a death and rebirth of Israel during the wilderness. And they have come to this place, Kadesh, once more. Numbers 20, with these clouds that are gathering over the chapter, function as a kind of transition. And we will see this in the chapters to come, but a transition that we're preparing for, because the people are being led now toward the land, and as the remaining rebels will die, and as those of the older generation who might not have been full-blown rebels, but nonetheless will not inherit the land physically, that will prepare for Joshua to step in, in the book of Joshua. The rest of Numbers and all of Deuteronomy takes place in the 40th year. And so from here, Numbers 20, the rest of the book, and then Deuteronomy takes place in a very condensed period of time. Because at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is going to die. Here in Numbers 20, his siblings die. We see here in verse 20 that the congregation has come now in the first month to this place. Now the first month of Israel's year was uh, quite an important time anyway because it would have been the month of Passover. The first month is the time in which they were marking at the beginning of their year, in the first of their months, the remembrance of God's deliverance out of Egypt. Numbers 20 is not a Passover celebration. It doesn't tell us the day during the month anyway. But it's to simply say, in a time where Israel's calendar would begin again in the first of the month, how will this congregation do? Because this people who come to Kadesh at this time, there are people here at this Kadesh that weren't there in Numbers 13 and 14. So I wonder how they will fare in the chapters to follow. Now that there has been a growing up of Israel within the wilderness. We learn in verse 1 that Miriam dies there and is buried there. Miriam, she was recognized as a prophetess and hymn, hymn, uh, songstress. almost said hymnstress, but that sounds too much like uh, fabric making. Uh, a Songstress, thinking songs and hymns. She is recognized as having an important influence in the people of Israel, the sister of the high priest Aaron, the sister of the prophet Moses. And we know that from Moses' young days, Miriam exercised care over him, that he was laid in a basket by the reed bank of the Nile River and was later recovered by Pharaoh's daughter. And then as the story unfolds, Miriam had had that important providential role to rescue baby Moses. Miriam is now much older uh, and Moses much older. When we saw Moses in Exodus come to the people of Israel with let my people go language, he was 80. We are now 40 years later. Moses in Numbers chapter 20 is 120 years old. And his sister... Miriam is older than that. It tells us she died there and was buried. And this would no doubt have an effect on Moses. Perhaps we should consider that with the response of Moses in the verses that follow that can seem rather bracing and shocking. It is introduced to us by a man who is now grieving the loss of his beloved sister Miriam. And who by the end of this chapter would lose his brother Aaron. A situation arises, not only does Moses not have a sister now. In verse 2, the congregation has no water now. There's no water for the congregation and we've been here before. The older generation experienced this in Exodus. In Exodus 17, there was a desire for water because of thirsting in the congregation. But not a confidence that the Lord would provide. Rather, a frustration that set in and a disbelief that was expressed and a grumbling that took place. And here in Numbers chapter 20, there's no water for the congregation. We've seen this kind of thing before for an earlier people. And now these generations have passed. We see a new congregation that now comprises, no doubt, the overwhelming majority of these who've gathered at Kadesh. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And at this point, the reader ought to think to themselves, oh, no, oh, no. (sighs) The older generation that had been uh, disciplined by the Lord and that had been disinherited from the promised land, they did this kind of thing with these verbs before. Assembling against, grumbling against, coming together in conspiracy against. And what we don't see here is they assembled themselves together and in prayerful trust to the Lord went to Aaron and Moses and said, Moses, intercede for us and all the rest. That is not what this text says. In verse two, they assembled together against Moses and against Aaron. Back in chapter 15 of Exodus. The way the text goes for the earlier generation is that when they came to Marah, they couldn't drink the water there because it was bitter. And they grumbled against Moses and said, what shall we drink? Because those days in the wilderness, they had found no water. Exodus 15, 22 to 24 speaks of an earlier water episode. And Exodus 17, another episode where God brings water from a rock. Here in Exodus, I mean, in Numbers chapter 20, we have an episode of needed water and water that is going to come from a rock. The people are now comprised in the majority of a different group. The newer generation has risen. They have grown up. They doubt have children of themselves and livestock to care for. And they say in verse 3, with quarrelsome words. Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. This is coming from... A heart, a disposition that is quarrelsome. We don't have to imply that. It says it in verse 3. They quarreled with Moses with these words. They don't come with a posture of humility and trust, confidence in God, trust in the leadership of Moses. That is not how they come. They are coming with grumbling hearts. They are coming with quarrelsome words. And with an expression in verse 3 that boggles the mind. Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord? You said, Perished when though? What brothers perishing do they have in mind? What compadres and contemporaries that have perished do do they have in mind? Well, we do know that in Numbers 16 there had been a rebellion led by Korah and Dathan and Abiram, and that those figures, as well as others who aligned as enemies of the covenant of Yahweh, they had faced the judgment of God. But a lot more has happened since. The wilderness years of the Israelites consisted of their brothers perishing. They would all die between the beginning of Numbers 13 and 14 and the entrance into the promised land. Joshua would lead a generation that would not have been characterized by the earlier wicked rebels... And so they seem to say, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. They know that people have been dying in the wilderness. Some under the earlier judgment of God from number 16. And they express with their quarrelsome words, we might as well have had that happen to us. Would that we had perished. If this is in the majority, the new generation of Israelites... They are essentially saying, would that we had died with the earlier generation. Again, an expression that seems to boggle the mind, moving forward in verse 4, they don't stop. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? We don't know if there's just a simple ignorance of history at play here, but let's deal with their question, shall we? Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? So, into the wilderness from where? Well, in the book of Exodus, Moses led the Israelites out of Egyptian captivity and then to Sinai where they encountered the Lord and received the means and ways by which they will draw near to Him and be a light to the nations in the land they're inheriting. They rebel against the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? Well, initially, Moses' leadership was leading a redeemed people toward the promised land. But the wilderness began to occupy their years. One pastor had remarked rather humorously and ironically that the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt in one night. And they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And it's not because the Lord is not mighty. It's because the people are rebellious. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? The history of the people of God over those decades included the history of provision by the Lord. Places to drink and even miraculous provision of water. Don't you think in an earlier generation that story might have been shared to a successor? Here's what God has done. You can trust the Lord. Here is how he earlier showed his faithfulness. Hope in him. Don't turn from him. That would be utter folly. Surely they would have in mind as well the daily provision of manna. During the 40 years of Israel's wilderness wanderings, six days out of seven, manna was provided twice as much on the sixth day so that they wouldn't have to gather on the seventh. Has the Lord provided and shown himself faithful to the people? Absolutely he has. So when they say, have you brought us out here and why? That we should just die here. They've not been brought out here to die. They've been sustained all of those years and been raised up by God to inherit the land. Are they not preaching the truth to themselves? Are they simply drifting into snares of lies and deception one after another? They're concerned not only for themselves but for their animals. Not only that we should die here, they said, but also we and our cattle. We would almost be afraid they would start uttering words like the earlier Kadesh rebellion did. In numbers 14, those people had said would that we had died in Egypt or had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? We were sort of worried in numbers 20 that that's where this is heading. Are they about to say, let's choose a new leader? This is not an encouraging turn of events. Why have you brought us into this wilderness? And then in verse 5. And why have you made us come out of Egypt? To bring us to this evil place. Isn't it interesting. That in their recalling of the earlier events. It's not Egypt that was the evil place. But this place. Where they are currently at. And heading toward the land of inheritance. That has become what they despise. They are showing too much imitation. In their words and actions. With the earlier rebellious generation. That looked back to Egypt. With a gleam in their eye. Oh Egypt. Oh I remember what life was like in Egypt. Captivity and bondage. And they're talking about the place in the wilderness post-deliverance as a place that is evil. Why have you made us come out of Egypt? Made us come out of Egypt. In Exodus 2, the Israelites cried out to the Lord for deliverance. They longed to be rescued. And these people are saying to Moses, why have you done this to us? brought us to this evil place it is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates and there's no water to drink well you know what's in the promised land grain figs vines and pomegranates and in Egypt was bondage and captivity but their eyes, their eyes have drifted to what they think they're now missing that lies behind them instead of being transfixed on what lies ahead of them, which God will most certainly give. They, they complain about where they currently are. This isn't a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. Now, wait a second, though. Why is it that for these years they've been in a wilderness where this has not been the kind of fruit and produce that's characterized it? They are in this wilderness because of rebellion. They are in this because of rebellion. And the answer to their dilemma is not more rebellion. Now I know sinners would like to rebel against God and not have to face any consequences. That is not the world that scripture tells us of. That is not the God whom we serve, who is holy and lifted up and righteous. And these Israelites are part of a congregation that has been rebellious against the Lord. And in rebelling against the Lord, they look at their current situation and they say, well, this stinks, this evil place. They don't like where they are, but they're not trusting in God to begin with anyway. They're not hoping in him. While he has sustained them, been gracious to them, and slow to anger with them. Well, I told you then about gathering clouds, right? The the gloom and the shadow that seems to loom over this passage. And we think, all right, with a, a new generation having risen up, and now the majority of the Israelites comprising these folks, this is what we read now. We're concerned, and rightly so. What does Moses do? It tells us in verses six to nine. That they will go before the presence of the Lord for instruction. Which is always the right response to go to God in prayer. Here's what Moses does. And he does what he should do. And he comes before God and he prays to God. He calls out to God. Because God loves Moses. God loves these people. He's delivered these people. He's going to give them a promised land. And in verses 6-9 through there are instructions from the Lord. It sets up this way. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly. And I imagine they went quite hastily, but I'm implying that. Uh, They went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and they fell on their faces. The tent of meeting is another phrase for what's called the tabernacle that we've seen in Numbers. The tabernacle, the place where God would meet with Moses, proclaim words to Moses, receive at the bronze altar sacrifices as a pleasing aroma mediated by those priests from Levi's tribe and Aaron as high priest. It says Moses and Aaron went there. They go to the place that would mark the dwelling of God, the manifest presence of God. They come before the presence of God to pray to God. They fall on their face to God and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. This probably means in the visible sense of fire and cloud that Exodus and Numbers have already indicated earlier. That's no doubt the same kind of thing we should imply here because it was explicitly the case earlier. What are the Lord's instructions to Moses? The Lord spoke to Moses. And by the way, even though Moses is directly receiving the word here, Moses and Aaron are there. Aaron and Moses are responsible for the following instructions to complete. They are responsible as the prophet of Israel and the high priest of Israel to go and follow through with the Lord's instructions. And the Lord says, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. He will once again, He will once again provide water miraculously for the people. And for the congregation's cattle, they were concerned about those too. For the congregation and their cattle. In other words, what the people need, God will provide. They need to trust Him. It's like the Red Sea all over again in Exodus 14, where the people of God were up against the water. And there looked like no escape. And the Egyptians were hot on the tail. And God opened the pathway through the waters on dry ground to demonstrate His might and majesty. But before that, the people were in full-blown panic mode. They had no confidence they were getting out of this alive. And in verse 8, God says, take the staff, assemble the congregation, speak to the rock. Tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. And in this way or so, you shall bring water out of the rock for them, for them to drink, for their cattle to drink. And this must anticipate a mighty outpouring of water. We don't have a few dozen Israelites is what I'm saying. And probably just a couple herds of cattle? No, instead, when you think about the Israelites and the cattle, whatever massive structure this is, God is going to pour forth such a gushing, merciful provision that it will supply what this gargantuan group needs. God is going to deliver, and I mean deliver in a mighty, visible way. They're not going to miss it. Three instructions. Take the rod, the staff, assemble the congregation, number two. Number three, speak to the rock. All right, let's see how Moses does. Three instructions. Take the staff, gather the people, speak to the rock. In verse 9, we're told Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Okay, we can check that box. Instruction number one, take the staff. Moses took the staff. But hold on for a moment. Look at the verse closely. He took the staff from before the Lord. Wait a second. What staff is this? There has been an earlier staff that was placed in the presence of the Lord of the tabernacle. In number 17, we are told of a miracle where God demonstrated that Aaron and the Levites were the priestly tribe and Aaron the rightful high priest because 12 staffs plus Aaron's were taken. Names put on them and put in the presence of the Lord. And only one staff on the following day was visibly demonstrating the power of God. The staff of Aaron had sprouted and budded and blossomed and bore almonds. And Moses was told, take that staff. The others were disseminated back to the tribal heads. Take this staff that has sprouted and blossomed, put it in the tabernacle in the presence of the Lord. Now you go to Numbers 20, and it says Moses took the staff from before the Lord. It's that staff. The number 17 staff, the staff that no longer looks like any other staff, but that demonstrates the miracle, wonder working power and authority of God. Moses has this in his hand. He comes out of the tabernacle with that. So, instruction number one take the staff. Moses does that. Number two. We see in verse 10, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. Okay, Instruction number two, gather those people together. You and your brother Aaron. Moses and Aaron gather the assembly together. Moses doesn't look to Aaron and say, you do it. Aaron doesn't look to Moses and say, no, it's going to be you. They both do it. They were both given the instruction. They both obey. This is going very well. In verse 10, and then having been told with the third instruction, speak to the rock, it says Moses said to them, oh no, he's not speaking to the rock. He's speaking to them. Well, maybe it's not a big deal though. He'll speak to the rock. I mean, he's taken the staff. They've gathered the people. They're right there in front of the rock. God has told Moses what to do. He says to the people... Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Hold on, we have the end result as we might have expected with the miracle. That's there, right? Water, God said him, "To bring water out of this rock. And water comes from the rock. Something's different. If you look at all the earlier instructions, you notice here Moses has deviated The careful reader notices that Moses was told to speak to the rock and instead he speaks to the people. And when he speaks to the people and then goes to the rock, he doesn't tell it anything. He strikes it twice with the staff. He's he's followed the first instructions, he and his brother Aaron. But here in verse 10, the expression to the people should concern us because of the following reaction. Listen. It's not that there weren't rebels he was addressing. It's not like Moses has said they are rebels, and then God says, "You know, Moses, I don't know how you've evaluated them this way. You're way off base. You know, that's not who they are. Not these people. Look and behold, they're great trust in me." Uh, that that is not that is not any correction that's given here. Moses is not wrong at what they are. They are rebels. But there comes across here, confirmed by in verse 11 here, an exasperation and an unrighteous anger that is being publicly displayed without self-control, where he seems to lose it. When interpreters over the years have described here a Moses that is demonstrating a rageful and vengeful words and action, that seems right. Right? That seems to be the correct interpretation. It resonates with me as I read it. It seems confirmed by verse 11 and the words of God in verses 12 and 13 with how Moses acted. Here now, you rebels, shall we bring for you water out of this rock? Even Moses' question is unique. He didn't even ask the Israelites that thing back in Exodus 15 or 17. When they needed water or needed provision, it wasn't phrased this way. Now Moses has been dealing with rebellion from Israel for 40 years. That's a long time. This is not the early days of wandering in Numbers 13 and 14 anymore. Moses is 120 years old. He's been dealing with this for 40 years. The new generation of Israelites have grown up and now they're sounding like the earlier rebels. Moses has just lost his sister Miriam... And he loses it. He loses it. He takes the staff after asking this question. And he strikes the rock. Now you might say, hold on, striking the rock. We've heard that before. Earlier in Exodus, Moses was told to strike the rock. And he was told to strike the rock and did that. But God says, speak to the rock and hold this staff. Moses doesn't just strike it once he strikes it twice it's like losing your cool slamming the door and then opening it to slam it again (laughs) in other words it's a striking twice of where such exasperation is demonstrated that he doesn't just do it once and say what happened here or Aaron stop him and say what are you about to do I see you're raising it up again and said he strikes the rock twice water does come out abundantly but something has changed Moses might have thought, before I give the people what they want, I'm going to tell them what I think they need to hear. But even Moses, even Moses could demonstrate words and actions that were dishonorable to God. Moses was not above falling in public embarrassment, in dishonor because of how he treated the words and people of God. 1 Corinthians Chapter 10 verse 12 says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. So if Moses is upset at the rebellion of the people, the wrong response to that is rebellion. And Moses is irate with the people, but his actions are in defiance of the instructions of Yahweh. It doesn't matter if Moses is upset with the people if what Moses' actions are doing is disobeying God. Disobedience is not the right response to disobedience. Moses is acting as if he has the authority here. He's going to take the staff and he'll strike it as many times as he would like. Twice. Twice. And even though God had said not to strike the rock, but instead speak to the rock, Moses doesn't do that. Who is Moses to reconfigure the instructions of God? As one pastor said, it's hard to obey God and be God at the same time. And Moses here is facing the struggle with what he wants to see happen and what his response seems right to him. Though God has told him to do this, Moses does the other. This is not Moses in submission to the Lord in this moment. He lifts his hand and strikes the rock twice. The people have demonstrated a lack of trust in the Lord. And the Lord's words to Moses will be, so did you, Moses. So did you. So did you. We are told in verse 11 that water came out abundantly. Well, how could it be anything less? It had to be abundantly if it's going to feed these Israelites and these cattle. It's not like they're finding a little trickle or a stream of water for people to come up. This is a gushing and abundant supply of water. You wish you had video of this. And they drink. The livestock drinks. But in verses 12 and 13, there is a consequence for Moses. This cannot go unchecked. Moses is in a position in Israel where he is a leader and a prophet of God among them. No one should want disobedience in the camp. But for Moses to defy the Lord in front of the high priest and the people is no small thing. This is a grave and serious thing. And in verse 12, the Lord says to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. He's talking to Moses and to Aaron. Moses will die at the end of Deuteronomy. Aaron will die at the end of this chapter. They will not be a part of the generation to go into the land. I don't think we should imply from this... That Moses was an unbelieving Israelite. No. I think we must recognize that Moses' disobedience here carried with it a kind of consequence that would not be undone. The Lord says to Moses and Aaron, because you didn't believe in me. I don't think it's a general statement about their spiritual status. I think it's about what's just happened. They failed to trust in Yahweh. Whose words and actions did Moses trust in? His own. He took things upon himself in that moment. After God had explicitly, it's not like Moses said, well here's the rock, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do here. He defied the words of God, struck the rock twice. He and Aaron are given this consequence in verse 12. They failed to uphold Yahweh as holy. This was a rash action. And it impugned the holiness of God in front of the congregation. How did Moses not uphold God as holy? Let's think about a few ways. How did Moses not uphold God as holy? Well, first of all, he didn't obey God's instruction about the rock. If God's word had said something and Moses said, I shall not submit to those words, that is not upholding God as holy. It's treating his word as irrelevant, as only convenient if I happen to agree with it. And therefore, I will not submit to it if I think in this case my response would be better. Moses is failing to uphold God as holy because he didn't obey God's instruction about the rock. But also consider that he spoke in a lack of self-control and rage toward the people confirmed by the striking here. He did what was right in his own eyes at the moment. And that did not uphold God as holy. It instead demonstrated that that moment Moses was holding the staff of Yahweh acting as if he himself had the authority to do the action. When really Moses was to represent Yahweh with words and actions. He was to be the mouthpiece of the Lord to the people whom God had rescued and loved. But he spoke in anger toward the people. Moses acted with the staff as if the authority belonged to him instead. In these ways, and perhaps others, we could realize how Moses did not uphold God as holy. How would upholding God as holy have looked? Taking the staff, gathering the congregation, speaking to the rock. All of it would demonstrate the importance of Yahweh's words all the way down. And then the miracle working power of Yahweh and the humility of Moses, though he was frustrated with the congregation. He should submit to the Lord and not to his flesh. But in this moment, Moses doesn't submit to the Lord. He says, you did not uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. They will have a new Moses. The new Moses is named Joshua. We've seen him already in the book of Numbers, earlier in the book of Exodus. Joshua will be the successor of Moses. When Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy, the language of Joshua opens with saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now arise and take the land. It, it seems to give the impression that Moses is like the last remaining Israelite of that older generation before he died. And then when he dies, God says, Joshua, lead them in. It's time to go. You shall not be the one to bring this assembly into the land that I have promised them. We're told in, verse, in, uh, in the Psalms that uh, our interpretations of Numbers 20 here are correct. Psalm 106 mentions Numbers 20 episode. In Psalm 106, 32 and 33, it tells us the people angered him at the waters of Meribah and it went ill with Moses on their account. They made his spirit bitter and he spoke rashly with his lips. So Psalm 106 confirms that we can't look at Moses' words and say, oh no, this was only pure and righteous indignation here. That is not what was happening in Numbers 20. The rest of the Bible confirms that. In verse 13, these are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and through them he showed himself holy. Moses didn't show the Lord as holy. He did not uphold him as holy. But God's merciful provision to the people and God's righteous words to Moses in response to what Moses has done. That does uphold the Lord as holy. The Lord will uphold himself as holy by displaying mercy and judgment. And in verse 13, these waters of Meribah are called this here where the people quarrel with the Lord. The rest of the Old Testament does have occasion to reflect on this earlier episode. In Psalm 95, 8, we're told, don't harden your hearts as at Meribah in the wilderness you see, the waters of Mirabah marked not only the merciful provision of God, it was preceded by the opposition and grumbling spirit of the people. And Psalm 95 is using that as a lesson for us, saying what sort of people ought we to be? And Psalm 95 says, don't have hardened hearts like those people. Uphold the Lord as holy. Trust his word. Follow him even when you don't understand. In Psalm 114, 7 and 8, Tremble, O O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water and flint into a spring of water. See, Psalm 114 is remembering the miracle-working power of the Lord. The deepest concern for the Israelite congregation was not their lack of water, but their lack of trust. Lack of water is going to leave you really thirsty. Lack of trust in God will condemn you. The heavier reality that had to be addressed is these people beholding the glory and words of the Lord. What will they do now with the Lord? He has provided water in His mercy. He took the rock and He made water flow from it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells us the rock in the wilderness is Christ. The rock who was struck in our place. God provided water for the people from the rock and he sent his son. That what comes from his son might give his people what they need. Christ would say things like, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He would even say in John... In John seven thirty seven, come to me and drink. Are you thirsty? He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You read in Numbers 20 and you're impressed with a rock that gushes forth water. You haven't seen anything yet. What do you see? What Jesus can do. Where do you see what He will accomplish on the cross? Where do you see what He confirms and finishes on behalf of sinners? Where do you see what He does in your place? He'll bear all your shame and sin. And from His side will flow for us living water and life. We need to uphold God as holy. We look at Moses here and we should learn a lesson. We should not test the Lord with disobedience. I won't trust the Lord in this area or this area. I'll take it into my own hands here or there. And I'll act as the authority to run the moral decisions of my life. Don't test the Lord with disobedience. You should trust His goodness and His faithfulness. Behold the stories of the Word of God where you have seen the resounding faithfulness of the Lord. It is sin that will show itself as unfaithful. You should also leave vengeance to the Lord. Moses was angry and unrighteously so. And Moses overstepped in his words and in his actions. We should entrust the Lord to do what is just and right. And we should submit to what God has commanded in his word. If we are the people of God, if we confess Jesus as Lord, we have a responsibility to uphold God as holy. And our words and our actions and our submission to his word communicate that. But if we want to take things and decisions and authority into our own hands and do what seems right in our own eyes, then we will not uphold God as holy. And our rebellion will reap consequence. Instead, you should come to Christ and drink. You should flee to the rock who is Christ. From Him will flow rivers of living water. He says so. And He's never broken a promise. So He says, come to me and drink. And nobody in line in Israel in Numbers 20 had to think, I hope there will still be water out of that rock when I get there and no one need worry whether there is life and place in the kingdom of Christ for them you should come to Christ he is enough for you come to Christ and drink Ligon Duncan was preaching on this this uh, passage once in numbers 20 and he said we can learn something here about the grace and mercy of God think about the rebellion of these israelites Think about the fact that they will go on to inherit the land. Here's what Ligon Duncan says. Numbers 20 lets you know no one is righteous enough to earn the promised land. If Moses and Aaron and Miriam have fallen short of the glory of God and have failed the standards of righteousness, then nobody in Israel will earn that land. Not if Moses, Aaron and Miriam don't have enough righteousness for it. What they need is not to muster up more righteousness to earn something. What they need is to look to the provision of God who has done for them what they cannot do and whose mercy flows from the rock which is Christ. Zechariah 13.1 talks about that coming day of salvation Christ fulfilled. Zechariah 13.1 says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and unrighteousness. Friend, the fountain's name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to Him and drink. Let's stand as we pray.